Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Professor David Patwain is based in the School of Education at Liverpool John Moores University. He taught in various schools and sixth form colleges from 1994 to 2006. After completing a PhD in 2006, David joined Edge Hill University, working initially in the Department of Social and Psychological Sciences, subsequently in the Faculty of Education. He joined Liverpool John Moores University in May 2016. His research interests focus on how psychological factors influence and in turn are influenced by learning and achievement. He has a long-standing interest in test anxiety amongst school-aged populations and the development of intervention to provide students with the tools they need to manage test anxiety. Hello, David. How are you? Yes, good morning, Cathy. I'm very well, thank you. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to talk about my research. Thank you. Well, you've recently published a very catchy paper, which we all were very excited about when it came out. Well, the title of it was Warning Students of the Consequences of Examination Failure, an Effective Strategy for Promoting Student Engagement. That was the question you posed. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the context behind this paper, you know, why teachers would sort of warn of the negative consequences of sort of exams and why you wanted to find out more about the kind of the impact of language around that. Well, this is something... I actually stumbled across by accident. So a few years ago, I was interviewing students preparing for their GCSEs about their experience of preparing for their GCSEs, students in years 10 and year 11. And something I hadn't anticipated, but students, uh, most of them brought up, was that as soon as they got into year 10, they said it was almost like this barrage of messages coming at them about the importance of their next two years and how important the GCSEs were for their future life trajectory, you know, in terms of getting the jobs that they aspired to, if they wanted to continue study, particularly in in sixth form for A-levels, but also for vocational courses and technical courses and for apprenticeships and so on. You know, the importance of getting good GCSEs was absolutely paramount. And not, not in every school and not every teacher, but sometimes these messages were used with an awful lot of frequency and sometimes they were quite heavy-handed too. So I thought, well, this is interesting because there's absolutely nothing in the literature really about all of this. So it struck me as something that would be worthwhile researching. And, you know, sort of several studies on and, and several years down the line, I think we can say that, you know, what's the context? Why do teachers use these? Well, because this is the system we work in, because GCSE results do have a profound effect on students' subsequent life trajectory. So, you know, from one perspective, teachers are just alerting students to the reality that they face. But I think we can also say that, you know, teachers are also subject to pressures as well, top-down pressures, particularly coming from Ofsted about, you know, ensuring that their students achieve a certain profile of grades and you know, I think it's like a combination of these you know, teachers wanting to do their best for the students and students to do the best they can possibly do for the students' benefit, but also, you know, teachers are subject to pressures as well from their own side. 
So it's everyone's trying to motivate each other. You know, the teachers are, it's, it's high stake situation for them. They're trying yeah. to do their best for the pupils. But your paper was really exploring whether or not that strategy was effective. It's very intuitive for a mm -hmm. teacher to, and even a parent to sort of, you know, try and emphasize the importance of these exams. But you were interested in looking at whether or not the language used with students was likely to help or hinder student mm. engagement and achievement. So there's a couple of very interesting phrases within your work, and I just wanted to unpick them before we go into the main paper. And you talk about gain-focused messages and mm -hmm. loss-focused messages. So could you just sort of define those for us? Yeah, so a gain-focused message is a message that focuses on literally what you can gain. So it's a slightly more positively worded message. These are the benefits of achievement, whereas a loss-focused message is about the losses. This is what you lose from failure. So, you know, they're almost two sides of the same coin, you know. One type of message is saying, you know, these are the benefits of getting a good profile of grades and the loss focus message is these is what you're going to lose if you don't get this particular profile of grades. And loss focused messages are also commonly referred to as fear appeals, which sounds like a bit <laughs> interesting <laughs> phrase. There's plenty of fear appeals in my house with my 15 year old. So they sort of would, you know, please don't fail. You might fail. You know, all those sort of threats that we come across as parents or teachers. Yes, that's right. It's a bit of a scary term, really, isn't it? Fear appeals. It's actually a, a term borrowed from the health literature, actually. And it's used to describe the kind of messaging you have that encourages people to avoid negative health-based actions. So, you know, for instance, these are the consequences of not engaging in regular breast examination or testicular examination. These are the negative consequences of smoking or using one's mobile phone while driving. And, you know, endless numbers of <laughs> sort of messages we hear about good behaviours, healthy behaviours and so on. And in the sort of health literature, would that, would that type of messaging generally be considered to be demotivating? No, it depends on several things, but most principally, whether the person accepts the message and believes the message, you know, the message is truthful, but actually, you know, there are negative consequences to, you know, not engaging in, you know, self-examination, for instance, for, for breast or testicular cancer. So it's whether you believe the message in the first instance, and then secondly, whether you believe that actually you are capable of successfully or accurately performing that self-test or you know, whether you are capable of, for instance, in the in the context of giving up smoking, whether you can actually give up smoking. Will giving up smoking work? Will that protect my health? Can I do it? And there's all, all kinds of reactions about that. You know, sometimes people will dismiss the message. Sometimes people will find the message too much to do anything about. Sometimes people will accept the message. There's, there's all these kind of sort of defensive reactions on the one hand and what you might call adaptive reactions on the other. So, so they can be uh, effective and they can't be. It depends on how the person responds to and interprets the message, what the person brings to, from their side to the message. I can't help but also think about parallels in the probation literature. I'm a criminologist by background yeah, okay. and okay. thinking about the kind of so much relies upon the motivation of the offender or, you mm -hmm. know, the context of the offences or tapping into different elements of that person's sort of motivation. And it's really quite complex, isn't it? And 
it is about the relationship that you also have with that particular person as well. And as a teacher pupil, you can imagine so much relies upon, you've just mentioned the kind of the quality of authenticity that that teacher might need to bring to that sort of dynamic that might be impactful. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We've just collected some data on teacher-student relationship, actually, and how that might impact on this process. We haven't had a chance to analyse it yet, but I think you're absolutely right. I think the quality of that relationship between a teacher and a pupil, you know, if it's characterised by a student perceiving a teacher as supportive, trusting, helping them achieve their goals and so on and so on, I think probably a student is much more likely to accept that message and respond to it positively. The other thing that I'm thinking about is what's written in school reports, you know, the sort of the that threat based language, you know, if, you know, John doesn't pull up his socks, there are going to be consequences in June. And I'm just thinking about the whole sort of language around this. Anyway, I'm totally digressing. Let's focus (laughs) on your study. Tell us about your study methodology for this particular paper and what you specifically set out to investigate. Okay, so it was using a quantitative methodology. So we were asking students to report on how engaged they were in mathematics classes uh, using a self-report scale. We also asked students to self-report how frequently their teachers were using these lost focus messages or, or fear appeals and how students responded to those fear appeals. And uh, I mean, there are numerous ways in which students can respond to fear appeals. We, we went for two sort of basic prototypical responses, one of which you would call a challenge response. So the student responds to that message in a positive way, that if I work hard, I can avoid failure, I can get the grades that I want to. And we also looked at something called a, a threat response. So a threat response is the opposite. It's like, I can't do this. I'm not sure I can do this. And it's associated with negative emotions, hopelessness, anxiety, and sometimes defensive behaviours, you know, about switching off to protect oneself. And so we've got these questionnaire measures. We had originally intended to collect three waves of data over years 10 and 11, so we could follow the students as they were progressing through years 10 and 11. And we started data collection when students were in year 10 in 2019. And I don't know if you can see the looming elephant in the room. (laughs) We planned for three waves of data collection and COVID intervened for the final wave of data collection. So we only ended up with two waves, which is kind of okay. It's not as good as three. Because what we had actually wanted to do was hopefully look at the frequency of teacher fear appeals at one wave, how that relates to evaluation or response to the messages at a second wave, student engagements at the third wave, and then actually we got GCSE grade on the end of that as well. So that's the kind of optimal design if you want to have like a a predictor mediator outcome. We had to do it with two waves, which is not quite as good, but, but you can do it. David, why did you choose to focus on sort of fear appeals? And also, it's a very specific subject, maths, isn't it? I mean, we could talk all day about this sort of, we've heard of that sort of phenomenon of maths anxiety, and it's a particular subject that can really be quite emotive for a lot of students. Yes, it is. That's, That's a very good point. Yeah, there's a few subjects that seem to, you know, arouse some particular kind of fears. Maths is one of them. Second language learning is another, and so on and so on. But why did we focus on maths? It was partly pragmatic. So if you're going to do data collection of this type, it's slightly easier and more straightforward if you've got a subject which is compulsory, 
rather than optional. And all students have to do maths and English. So that makes it a slightly easier choice, maths or English. Also, from a practical point of view, you know, maths and English are the two key GCSE grades. You know, if you want to go and study this subject, you still need maths and English GCSE. If you want to go and study that subject, you still need maths and English GCSE. You know, you could be wanting to study something completely different from that. You've got to get these pass grades in English and maths GCSE. You know, and in fact, if you don't get them, you know, and you want to carry on, even, you know, doing a vocational course at an FE college, for instance, you know, you still have to carry on repeating maths and English while you're studying uh, alongside those vocational courses until you pass or get to the age of 18, in which case you can stop. So it, it really ends up as being a straight choice between maths and English. Yeah, it makes for a clear-cut sample. That's yeah. totally understandable. And there was a lot of participants in your sample. It was about 1,500 teenagers aged 14 to 16 over across 14 schools. Yes, and that's partly because it becomes a bit of a numbers game because when you want to look at the relationship between a teacher variable, such as how often, how frequently they're using such messages, then what you've got is maybe, I don't know, 20 or 25 students in a class all, all reporting their teacher behaviour. So it's almost like you've got sort of 25 observer reports of what one person is doing, which is helpful because it means that you can check the consistency of those reports. And, and generally, students are incredibly consistent in the way in which they rate a teacher behaviour like this. But what that means is that you've got to aggregate those responses. So although you've got you know maybe loads and loads and loads of students, actually, if you've got, say, 20 or 25 students per class, what that means is you end up with maybe, you know, 90 or 100 teachers. And that's where it becomes critical for looking at the impact of teacher behaviour. So that's why that big sample was necessary. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So tell us about your findings. What impact do those fear appeals have on students? Tell us what you were surprised by, you know, what amazed you, what you were puzzled by. Well, all of the previous studies that we've done on this have found that more frequent teacher fear appeals are associated with both student challenge responses and student threat responses, which might sound a little bit counterintuitive at first. But essentially, if you think what this message is doing, it's prompting a student to think or reflect. And I'm using that term loosely because some of these sort of responses might happen so instantaneously, they kind of become ingrained and they're a little bit automatic. But, you know, if you break it down, it's basically saying to the student, is this important for you? And can you do it? And then the more you ask that, if students are going to respond in the positive, the more positively they'll respond. And if they're going to respond in the negative, the more negatively they'll going to respond. So actually, it's almost like the prompt can result in more common threat and challenge appraisals. So that's what all the previous research has found. We didn't find that effect in this particular study, and that's really quite curious. What we did find, however, though, was that the more individual student attended to that message, the more they, I suppose for want of a better word, yeah, li listened to that message, tuned into that message, accepted that message. That was actually related to a challenge appraisal in that the student was generally responding positively to that message and the challenge appraisal was linked to greater student engagement and greater student engagement was linked to a better grade. At the same time, however, students who made more threat appraisals, although that wasn't prompted by the 
extent to which the students paid attention to it. But the more students made threat appraisals, negative appraisals of the message, then the worse they did in their GCSE maths. So if you want to kind of simplify that, boil it down, the, the critical thing is not the message so much as how the student responds to the message. And it's such a subjective kind of thing, isn't it? I think your paper points out and hints at that teachers need to be a little bit more sensitive to both the delivery of the message, the context, the relationship with the student, and to be more sensitive as to how that might be perceived by the pupil. Yes, I think that's right. You know, if if you accept the finding that the critical thing is the student response to the message, not the, not the message itself, then inevitably, if you've got a group of students, maybe at a class or a whole year group, maybe if it's assembly, something like that, then within that group, if they're getting that message, you're going to have some who respond positively to it, some who respond negatively to it, and some who, you know, just ignore it, or disregard it completely, and everything in between. So, yeah, what that means is, for those who are responding well to it, no problem, great. But for those who aren't responding well to it, then it's potentially going to be having a negative effect, a backfiring effect, a demotivating effect. So, yeah, it then puts the emphasis, I think, on the teacher or the, the head of year, whoever's delivering this message, knowing their students well enough to be able to gauge who is going to respond well to this message and when. And I don't know, sometimes I, I've talked about this issue quite a lot with teachers in some CPD sessions, and, and I almost approached it a little bit cautiously, thinking, is this a little bit too utilitarian. But I was really quite surprised because, you know, the teachers I've talked to about this have said, well, of course, of course, we want to do the best of the students. Of course, we don't want to scare them too much. And of course, we try and balance these messages sensitively. And so I was quite buoyed by that, I think, that there was an openness on the part of teachers to want to sensitise their messages. I would go as far as saying it's probably best not to use them in groups. Right. That I was going to ask you about the context, you know, in front of your peers, you can imagine it might have a sort of a different impact to a one-on-one chat. Yeah, gosh, <laughs> when you bring peers into it, it's like the whole thing magnifies in complexity, doesn't it, about how people have their relationship with their peers. You know, are you too cool for school or are you one of these people who has to outperform your peers and so on and so on? <laughs> it would get enormously complicated, wouldn't it? And also, is it best to have that messaging at the beginning of year 11 when they've actually pricked their ears up and they know they've got these exams looming? Or is it best in year 10, uh, scattered over time? What about the intensity of the messaging? Well, I think, you know, there's the right message for the right person at the right time. So I don't think you can go as far as saying, you know, this level of message intensity is always going to work or this timing is always going to work. I think it's a case of gauging. When is a student going to respond positively to it? I mean, this is actually, it's it's an element of carrot and stick, isn't it? (laughs) When, when's the stick going to work most effectively? When's the carrot going to work most effectively? In order to judge that, you just need to get to know people as best you can and understand their private and internal motivations the best you can. And that's not always an easy thing to do, but I think generally teachers are very well placed to do this. And in saying that, we know that you've actually, teachers might be listening to this thinking, well, how am I going to know which students are going to respond to fear appeals as a threat Mm -hmm. rather than a challenge? But actually, in the study, you have identified, you mentioned, which grabbed my attention, a sort of a, 
a questionnaire that you use called Teachers Use of Fear Appeals Questionnaire, which does sound incredibly useful, which you created in 2019. Is that mm-hmm. something teachers can use in school themselves to assess the impact of their language choices on young people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's a very short questionnaire. It's got questions on the frequency of fear appeals, and I'm sure teachers already know how frequently they're using these. So they might not want to use those questions, although they're you know free to do so if they wish, or you know maybe they'd just be interested in seeing what the student's perception of their behaviour was. And they've got questions which are for gauging positive student responses, challenge evaluations, challenge responses, and also negative student responses, threat responses, or threat evaluations of the message. And teachers would be able to get a sense then from the student body overall. Are they generally making more challenge or threat appraisals, but also on individuals? How is an individual responding? And how can teachers get hold of that questionnaire so that we can actually, you know, put it in the podcast notes and they can actually get to using it? Well, I'd ordinarily say just contact me directly and that's fine. I'll send it to you. But if there's an opportunity to actually just upload a simple Word document in the podcast notes, then that's absolutely fine. I'll send one of those to you. And if people wish to access it, then they can do. Brilliant. We'll do that. And I think it's making me think about it's the beginning of the academic year. You know, I always think if I was a teacher, I would want to know how my class feels about me, how they feel I come across about that relationship between us. Because I think if you can get that right, motivating students is so much easier. I'm just struck every year at the beginning of school, my own children come home and they tell me which teachers are really good teachers. And I always say, what does that mean? And they say, well, this teacher's so nice. This teacher makes me laugh. You know, they're very interested in that. They want to get that rapport right. And I think anything that encourages teachers to reflect on how they come across to pupils, again, that pupil perception, paying much more attention to it, I think is extremely fruitful, you know, as a kind of a foundation for the work that you describe, you know. Yeah, absolutely. What makes a good teacher? Relatedness, which is what you're talking about, you know, building up a rapport, supporting students' competence through their instructional strategy and supporting student autonomy. Rightly or wrongly, I think the school inspections in England focus almost exclusively on instructional repertoire and behaviour, student behaviour that is and achievement at the expense of relational support and relational support is so underplayed and but the sad thing is everyone knows it you know everyone knows how important it is you know like you just said your children come home which are the good teachers the ones who are building that rapport you know teachers know it because it's what you have to do i know you make an extremely you know interesting point and i i love the fact that the methods you use you you inspire teachers use to capture student voice you know, in relation to their confidence, their fears. I mean, that's so, so lovely. You know, again, what we've just mentioned to get teachers to think about capturing people's voice more, you know? Yeah, I think it's becoming more frequently utilised in schools, actually. And I had a conversation with a head teacher just before COVID about this kind of field of research and, and so on and so on. And he showed me a questionnaire they'd done with their own year 11 students, which was almost exactly the same. The school themselves have keyed into this as being a particular issue and they've just devised a series of questions, which are no better or worse than mine, to access the students' perceptions, the students' views on that. And, you know, that is actually one way in which student autonomy can be, which is another good thing, which helps support learning and achievement. That's another good thing that 
can help access and give students that perception that they are being listened to. And it, it, it all helps. It all helps. Yeah, I think access students' voice, listen to them, access their views. It will only be instructive. And also, no matter how high achieving a student is, I think one of the the things that your work does is remind us of the sort of the psychological component to learning and, and the emotional side of it and paying attention, particularly in a subject like maths, to how they're feeling they're doing. You know, that perception, again, is so critical because they might be a very high achieving student who's extremely anxious about their performance and feeling that they're not doing particularly well. Yes, emotions when learning and around testing are something else that's been somewhat um, underplayed and undervalued uh, as well, I think. But emotions drive motivation, emotions drive engagement, and emotions drive achievement. And we should never, ever forget that. Emotions are not a byproduct. You know, they're not an epiphenomenon of learning or motivation, engagement. They actually drive all of this stuff. And I'm always reminded of a, a quote by a relatively recent Minister of Education, I won't name, <laughs> who, who said, you know, schooling's not about enjoying it, actually. You know, I think the, the, the point he was making was that, you know, it's about achievement, not enjoyment. But he's missed the point totally, isn't that students who enjoy it are going to achieve more. Absolutely. Of, That's, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, they have to actually enjoy being in that classroom, enjoy that mm. rapport with that pupil as well. Now, I know that one of your specialist topics is test anxiety, so I'm not going to let the moment mm. pass. Imagine you have a child in year 11, like I do, or you've got an anxious child, a student who you're very worried about, who's very, very anxious. What do we know about test anxiety? So you're a teacher at the beginning of the school year, beginning of GCSE or A-level year. And if you're a parent in terms of managing test anxiety, what three things, messages would you like to convey to them? What is it that you know about test anxiety that you would love us to know? First of all, the pressures of taking GCSEs and A-levels and you know, any high-stakes exams are not something to be scared of, actually. Stress in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, stress can become a bad thing when it becomes overwhelming and when it becomes chronic, you know, because over when it's ingrained over a long period of time, you know, it can lead to you know, emotional exhaustion and burnout and all these sorts of things. But sometimes stress can be a helpful thing in that it can drive people to perform better than they would have done otherwise. It all depends upon how you respond to that pressure. So the point I'm making is that you're not a passive recipient of this pressure. It is something that you can change and use to your advantage. So that's point number one. Point number two is that when it does become overwhelming and develop into a, a more ingrained anxiety, some of the intervention work that I've done and some of the intervention work that others have done have shown that exam anxiety is extremely amenable to interventions that are short-term and light touch. So it's definitely something that can be done about. It's not inevitable. You don't have to live with it. You can learn to manage anxiety using some really quite straightforward methods. For instance, what's called diaphragmatic breathing, which is learning to breathe from your diaphragm rather than your chest. When you get anxious, you tend to breathe from your chest rather than your diaphragm. When you breathe from your diaphragm, it automatically puts you back in control. It starts reducing your anxiety and so on and so on. That's very good for controlling sort of like panic in the moment. 
but students can also build their sense of control through learning to engage their revision in what's called a self-regulated cycle of learning. So they're planning their revision, doing their revision, evaluating their revision, and then checking whether their revision is effective or not. And then on the basis of whether it's effective or not, engaging in new planning. And that might mean revising the same thing several times, or it might mean changing a different strategy of revision and so on and so on. So, you know, some practical things like that can put people in control. And there are also more psychological methods about learning what we call hot thoughts, thoughts that trigger anxiety and learning how to identify these thoughts, challenge these thoughts so that they don't become as frequent or as hot, so to speak. So, yeah, there's lots of things that can be done about exam anxiety. So don't feel it's inevitable. It is definitely something that can be changed. Point number three, I'd say on the basis of one and two, don't ignore it. Anxiety is one of the easiest things to ignore. And possibly to recognise children's anxiety. Anxiety has so many different symptoms. Irritability, inflexibility, you know, we might see a very sleep deprived or a child who's having sleep issues. I mean, it's just about being curious about how those students are feeling about those GCSEs and A-levels at this point in the year rather than later in the year. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, some people will go to great lengths to hide their anxiety. But exam anxiety or test anxiety, again, is something which is very, very, very simple and straightforward to screen for. And again, I can provide a questionnaire. I actually can provide a manual if you'd like. Yes, please. uh, Every teacher teacher listening will be, uh, where's that (laughs) manual? Where's that screen? I think it's a beautiful time of the year. It's autumn for teachers to do the screening. I'm a big fan of that early screening and putting those interventions in place. So that would be absolutely terrific. David, tell us all the other little bits and pieces of work that you're working on that we're going to hopefully interview you about in six months' time or a year's time. Okay, thank you very much. Actually, just before I go on to that, if there are any teachers or schools listening who do want to screen a class or a year cohort or something like that, it's something that I can actually do very, very simply and easily with an electronic link if they'd like to. So, I mean, they're welcome to use the manual themselves. So, you know, if they want to get a a really quite short, quick report on temperature check on the well-being and anxiety of their students in a particular cohort, then, you know, they're very welcome to contact me directly. And that's something that we can set up. And it'll get get turned around very quickly. You're about to be inundated. Move on. (laughs) (laughs) So what am I working on at the moment? I'm working on with some colleagues from Germany about developing a reliable and valid measure for measuring learning and testing related emotions in primary school children. So most of the research on emotions has been done on secondary school children and older. And we were trying to establish the extent to which children down to the age of seven years could take some simple questionnaire items on enjoyment, boredom, relief, pride, and so on and so on, common learning and testing related emotions, and see the extent to which that they could actually understand these questions. So the first stage of it is is simply sitting down with children and saying, you know, can you read this question to me, please? What do you think it means? What answer would you choose? Why would you choose that answer? And just checking that children can actually understand those questions. So we just finished that phase of the research. And now what we're going to go and do is ask a larger group of children to complete that measure so we can check the psychometric, the statistical properties of that scale to make sure it all stacks up and so on and so on. 
So that's an, uh, an emerging and really quite exciting piece of research I'm involved in. A project which I've just finished with a colleague of mine from Liverpool John Moores University is looking at student-centred and teacher drivers of science aspirations in students in Key Stage 3. And we looked at, in terms of teacher drivers, we looked at teacher enthusiasm for teaching science. We looked at what the teachers tell students. Actually, in, in some ways, quite similar to this piece of research, the, the language that teachers are using about science, what they're are they telling students science is, is useful in this career or is it useful for this part of life? You know, what, what does science give us, basically? And also the teacher self-efficacy for teaching science to a particular class. So we've got those teacher variables. And in terms of student variables, what we've got is the students' expectancy of success in their science lessons and science work. We've got the students' own personal values about science. So do they think science is interesting? Do they think science achievement is important? Do they think science is just generally useful for life outside of school and so on? And also the costs, the personal costs of learning science. Does it require too much effort? Do I get too worried about failure in science, an emotional cost? Do I have to dedicate too much time to science homework at the expense of other stuff in order to do well in it? So we've got all these things in the, in the mix and we've only just started number crunching for that. And what can we say thus far? In terms of the student drivers, students with higher expectancy and higher value of all types of value, whether they find it interesting, achievement is important, science is useful, those students do better and those students have more aspirations to continue to study science, either at A-level or beyond or as a career. The cost thing is complex. So some forms of costs are negative. So emotional cost is negative. Effort is not necessarily negative. So if somebody believes science is really important, then actually the amount of effort required to do well in it isn't a negative thing. So there's all these kind of complexities going on that we're only just starting to get into. So that's one exciting piece of research I'm involved in as well. And I've got various other projects that are kind of trundling along as well. Well, it all sounds absolutely fascinating and we're extremely excited to, that's what we do at Tool.Dot, we disseminate research, translate research and find and locate all those lovely little frameworks and questionnaires and things, screening tools that schools can use, which they're always incredibly grateful for. So thank you, David. We hope to work with you again and we'll be able to create lots of podcast notes around what we've talked about, highlight your research as Researcher of the Month and hopefully return to your work at a later point, which we're very excited about as well. So thank you so much for talking to me today. And I hope this isn't the last time we speak. Thank you very much, Cathy. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.